This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, I am your public affairs host here on KDVS, and today we will, as has been our tradition of late, be joined by two more such individuals who host their own show. In our second segment today, we'll be speaking with Planetary Radio's Matt Kaplan, who produces a show that's heard not just here at KDVS, but on 200-something-odd stations across the United States and Canada, and I think other places as well. We love Planetary Radio and have actually had on many people associated with its production, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, the former president of the Planetary Society, and Bill Nye, the current president of the Planetary Society which, of course, is the sponsoring organization that sees to it that Planetary Radio gets produced on a weekly basis. We've had on Dr. Bruce Betts, who's the Planetary Society's Director for Science and Technology, on to talk with us. And we've had host Matt Kaplan on before. I can guarantee you pretty much that this is going to be a fun chat in our second segment about a subject that just excites us, exploration of other planets. I mean, real other planets. This is not Star Trek... Star Wars stuff. This is the real deal. Following that, we'll be speaking with Graham McIsaac, who will be hosting a new show titled The Academy of Whatever. Curiously, we recorded our chat with Graham before he actually took to the airwaves this Thursday morning. We are confident that he will do well. And I got to say, listening to some of the new uh, shows in the lineup, public affairs programs here at KDVS, I've been impressed so far. We have some good people working here to produce some interesting stuff for you, dear listener. But let us commence today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 8th of January. When, by the way, we mentioned on last week's show about these king tides, <laughs> beware. <laughs> Do want to note that in the interim, I have verified that we are having some very high and low tides because, well, we're closer to the sun now than we are any other time of the year. And when you get either a full moon or new moon close to this uh, January 4th date where we reach our nearest point to the sun, well, the tides really do go nuts. And I, I was very impressed by seeing how much of the beach had been alternately flooded and then left high and dry down at Half Moon Bay. It was on January 8th in 1790 that U.S. President George Washington delivered the first State of the Union Address that was done at Federal Hall in New York. And at that point, he was able to welcome North Carolina into the Union. And it was on January 8th in 1815, two weeks after the War of 1812 officially ended with the signing of the Treaty of Gaunt, U.S. General Andrew Jackson achieved the, quote, greatest American victory, unquote, of the war at the Battle of New Orleans, where he shot and killed an awful lot of young British soldiers. And we think very highly of our first president, George Washington, but maybe not so much about Andy Jackson. It was no less an authority than, I believe, Thomas Jefferson himself, who, commenting about the presidential prospects of Andrew Jackson, said, I am much alarmed at the prospect of seeing General Jackson become president. He is one of the most unfit men I know of for such a place. He has very little respect for laws or constitutions. Ouch. You know, I'm pretty sure they never bring that one up at the annual Jefferson-Jackson dinner the Democratic Party holds. On January 8th, in 1926, Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud became the king of Hejaz. In 1932, he combined it with the Nej region and called the new country Saudi Arabia, which is what we still call it today, one of the few countries on earth named after a family. 
And by the way, I believe it is a direct son of Ibn Saud, who is the current king of Saudi Arabia. He's something like 90, and well, he must be running out of heirs of the first generation by now, don't you think? Although I think he lived till 1952, so uh, I take that back. Nothing wrong with people born in the 50s. And finally, in what I gather is a red-letter day for bird watchers, it was on January 8th in 1951 that an actual breeding pair of Kehau, a species of petrel once believed extinct, were found alive and well in Bermuda. It was a petrel, not a robin. All right. I do want to note that we enjoyed having radio legend Donna Abadoni on last week's program. Hopefully you caught that. If you did not, it is available, as are most of our shows, on radioparallax.com. But uh, I was struck in, in our discussion that at one point uh, there's a recommendation that you sit down and try and make a list of your heroes. So in the interim, I, I tried to do that. And, you know, we don't have that many heroes here at Radio Parallax. But I thought I'd quickly just throw out, you know, 10 names that sort of qualify. From the world of science, we can cite three heroic figures, Galileo, Darwin, and Pasteur. What about Einstein? <laughs> Not a hero of mine. A good guy, though. But I especially like the other three because they kind of had to stand against the scientific community or political powers of their day. It's somewhat harder to find people from the political world that we would consider heroes, but doggone it, I think George Washington qualifies. He could easily have made himself king, but declined to do so. We also very much admired Teddy Roosevelt, although we have to admit he was a bit of a madman. And I have to say JFK, not for necessarily anything that he accomplished, besides getting us to the moon by the end of the 60s, but the fact that he too stood against the political establishment of the day. Of course, I think he paid a very high price for that. I can think of three more from the entertainment field. Mark Twain, the greatest of the American writers, I would say. And although in his personal life he wasn't always the most admirable figure, I think Charlie Chaplin is worthy of note as being a heroic figure for basically showing everybody how to do film comedy. Personal favorite of mine, Jack Parr, the guy that hosted The Tonight Show before Johnny Carson. His appearance on the TV stage didn't last all that long, but I thought he sort of uh, invented a lot of things that we take for granted on talk shows now and was just a damn literate person. I had to pick one more. I'd go with Isaac Asimov, probably the smartest guy that ever lived, or at least probably knew the most about the most things of anybody that ever lived, or is a candidate anyway. And those are 10 people I think we can admire. If I had to pick one more among the living whom I admire, it would be Tony Wheeler, who... Not coincidentally, I hope to bring on this program in the weeks to come as a guest. The trail that Tony Wheeler and his wife Maureen blazed across the world was something that this correspondent followed back in the 1980s and hope to follow again. And we uh, very much hope to bring him to you, as I say, sometime, uh, let's say in February. You know, and, and I do want to mention just in passing that if I had to pick a hero among those who helped produce radio programs... <laughs> We do admire Dr. Andy Jones's uh, producer, but I'd have to go in this case with Edward McMillan. Yay. For our quote of the day, and I want to thank Jeannie Keltner for posting this on her Facebook page. It's from someone named B. Lester, and no, I don't know who he is, but I like the quote. He said, If a man has an apartment stacked to the ceiling with newspapers, we call him crazy. If a woman has a trailer house full of cats, we call her nuts. 
But when people pathologically hoard so much cash they impoverish the entire nation, we put them on the cover of Fortune magazine and pretend that they're role models. Thanks, Jeannie. I thought of that when I was working out last night and up in the TV screen came Donald Trump to come on and browbeat a bunch of prospective robber barons in training. And we want to thank our good pal Dr. Andy Jones for sending this one around recently. It's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, who, like I say, was a bit nuts. But nevertheless, is an admirable man in many ways. Said Teddy, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a great twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Not bad, Teddy. Let's do a bonus quip today from our good pal Ed Martin, who said a couple years back, I tend to give celebrities a wide berth. I don't want to get what they've got. Our joke of the day is as follows. A graduate with a science degree asks, why does it work? A graduate with an engineering degree asks, how does it work? A graduate with an accounting degree asks, how much will it cost? And, of course, a graduate with an arts degree asks, would you like fries with that? Our stat of the day, according to the Financial Times, is that the Afghanistan war, which supposedly, I guess, uh, magically ended on December 31st at midnight, in fact, the longest foreign conflict in U.S. history, has cost American taxpayers nearly $1 trillion and will probably cost several hundred billion dollars more after it officially ends. The U.S. borrowed the money to pay for the conflict and has already racked up $125 billion in owed interest on the debt. And uh, Ms. Marillon, I, pr- I presume they borrowed that from various international bankers, which I suspect uh, does play a role in the enduring popularity of war, at least in certain circles. Our quasi-anecdote of the day comes from Mental Floss magazine, which notes that common knowledge has a lot to say about hats, but asks, are they true? And according to Mental Floss, the belief that Vikings wore horn helmets is in fact false. To quote from the piece, lots of ancient people wore horned helmets, the Teutonic Knights, Celtic warriors, Roman armies, the samurai, Indo-Persian warriors, Conan the Barbarian, maybe, but Vikings, not a chance. Evidently, this trope was popularized in Richard Wagner's 1876 four-part opera, Der Ring des Nibeling, and I'm sure I'm fracturing the German. And I would add in response, I did not know that. I also did not know the following, which I add as an addendum. The common knowledge that cowboys wore cowboy hats is apparently also false. Noted the magazine, invented in 1876, the classic Stetson looked more like a flat, boring version of a sombrero than the stylish, curvy hat that we know today. And it wasn't the most popular hat at the corral to begin with. In the cowboy's heyday, most wranglers wore top hats, sailor's caps, and, above all, bowler hats. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for denial after Russians apparently declared Vladimir Putin, quote, the person of the year, unquote, for the 15th straight year. Even as Russia's ruble plunged into new lows and its economy spiraled downward into recession and chaos. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a few weeks back for the advertising industry, or is it Google? With the news that Google has now admitted that 56% of ads on the internet are never even, quote, in view, unquote. That's defined as being on the screen for one second or more. And yes, 56% of the ads fail to meet that strict criteria. It is noted that advertisers are paying for illusory impressions of these ads, though they're not actually seen. And to quote from a bit by Reuters on this topic, Online advertising is a fickle thing and accounts for 20% of the ad industry's total spending and over 90% of revenue for the internet giants Google and Facebook. That said, no one seems to have any idea whether it actually works. In citing that 56% figure, they note that's a huge number of, quote, impressions, unquote, that cost money for advertisers but are as pointless as a television playing to an empty room. This is not news, by the way. Apparently last year, the web metrics company Comscore reported that 46% of online ads are never seen. And Spider.io, an ad fraud company acquired by Google last February, had pointed out that a large proportion of ads are, quote, viewed, unquote, only by robots revealing that one botnet of 120,000 virus-infected computers viewed ads billions of times, running up the tab for advertisers without offering them the human eyeballs they sought. Thus, we counsel you, when it comes to web advertising, beware of the claims made by salespeople. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for UFO aficionados with the news that the CIA now admits that a lot of the unusual activity in the skies back in the 1950s, well, it was them. Yeah, apparently the CIA has been tweeting links to some popular articles, and, uh, and they linked some readers directly to the CIA and the U2 program, 1954-1974, which is a 272-page document from 1998. The upshot of the report? The CIA was the culprit behind more than half of the UFO sightings logged in the 1950s and 1960s. The CIA would test its U-2 spy planes at 60,000 feet, an altitude that seemed impossible for man to reach at the time, leading observers, especially pilots, to suspect it wasn't man up there at all. And of course, the piece notes that air traffic controllers began receiving increasing numbers of UFO reports at high altitude. And the CIA, God bless them, would go out and cross-check the UFO reports with its own flight records. And in instances where it verified that the UFO in question was really one of their U-2s, it stayed mum. And while I realize Mr. Millen is interested in the percentage that wasn't uh, acknowledged by the CIA, my answer, swamp gas, the planet Venus, and a lot of grain alcohol. I want bourbon, I want stock. Now let's take a short break. We do note that Carl Sagan, although he was a great a tireless advocate of looking through the solar system and elsewhere to find life, was rather skeptical of some of the UFO claims. Sagan was fond of saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Now produces Planetary Radio. This is an excellent segue to uh, 
Suggest, dear listener, that you stick around for Matt Kaplan to follow in the next segment. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got more fun stuff coming your way. But I'm sitting out At the bar I'm getting drunk I'm feeling mellow I'm drinking bourbon I'm drinking scotch I'm drinking beer Look at a bar 